So do turn back to uh, John chapters 18 and 19 in your Bible that you've brought with you or on your device. Do join us at home as well in uh, following with the reading that we heard from John 18 verse 28 onwards. We've been going through John's Gospel pretty fast over this summer but stopping at places where Jesus has extended conversations with different people that he meets through the gospel and here is his conversation with Pilate so we're going to pray and then we're going to look at this together let me pray father we uh, want to listen very hard now we pray that you'd help us to do that by your holy spirit would you open our eyes and our ears to see and hear what you are saying here to us and may that then transform us in our lives today as we trust in Jesus and live for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes a review says more about the person leaving the review than it does about the thing they're reviewing. I don't know if you've noticed that. Here are some comments in online reviews about a few of the most famous and historically significant and beautiful places in the world. So here we go, on the screen. Eiffel Tower, someone wrote, rusty junk. The Colosseum, nothing interesting inside, in my opinion. Then, uh, the Ponte Vecchio in Florence. Uh, this person said, like the rest of Florence, boring. Uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Wasn't what I expected. Towers barely leaning. And then even uh, Disney World, Florida. Terrible day in this park. Nothing to do. Well, this scene that we have in front of us in John 18 and 19, this next conversation, is a trial. And the question we need to ask as we examine this is, who is really on trial here? Who is being reviewed, if you like? Is it really Jesus or is it in fact Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the crowds? Is it us as we read this today? John is a master of irony and everything he writes has multiple layers and meanings and at face value this is the climax of many chapters of increasing tension between Jesus and those around him. Jesus has made extraordinary claims that what he was doing on earth was what God the Father was doing on earth, even that he and the Father were one and that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. The thing that the religious leaders saw with complete clarity is something that I guess many today don't really understand. And it's this, that you can't just say Jesus is a really good moral teacher and kind of leave it at that. That's what so many people would like to do with Jesus, isn't it? Avoid those saying that he is or was God or the son of God or something like that. But these religious leaders know that, that just calling him a good moral teacher isn't an option. 
Because somebody who makes that, that those, the kind of claims that Jesus is making is either completely crazy, in which case, why should, why should you listen to him about anything at all? Or he's deliberately making it up, so why should you listen to him about anything else either? Or he is actually who he says he is, in which case he's far more than merely another good teacher in a line of good teachers. So they put him on trial. But here's the first, uh, the first thing we need to see in these verses, the big irony of what's going on here. The man on trial as king is king. The man on trial as king is king. They bring him to Pilate, the Roman governor. What are you bringing him to me for, says Pilate. Surely this is an internal matter for the Jewish religious leaders and the community. Verse 31, no, they've already decided that this isn't something they can handle for themselves because they've already decided on the appropriate penalty for Jesus' crimes. And that penalty isn't available to them without going to Pilate. Crucifixion, of course, would utterly discredit Jesus to the watching world. That's why the Jewish leaders are so keen to make it happen. They probably have in mind Deuteronomy chapter uh, 21, the one whose body hangs on a tree is cursed. But Jesus and John have a different purpose and result for the crucifixion in mind. So, Pilate seeks to interview Jesus himself and sort this out. Are you the king of the Jews, he says. Now, this is a question that Jesus cannot answer directly. Not, not at first, because to say yes would imply he was a mere revolutionary leader. And he wants to show how he's far more than that. Uh, to say no would not be true. So Jesus pushes back. Actually, Pilate, do you know what? You have a horse in this race as well. You're not a neutral observer to what's going on here, Pilate. But Pilate wants to say this is, this is just a Jewish community matter. So Jesus says, actually, my kingdom goes far beyond this world. I'm not a king in the sense you understand it, one who holds on to power no matter what and uses violence to get it. My kingdom is from another place, and I've come into the world as its king to show the world the truth. Well, what is truth? Pilate says. The only truth Pilate knows is power. That's why all he wants to know is whether Jesus is trying to seize his throne through violence. Are you after my role here, Jesus? Are you, you a threat to the Roman power here? If the answer is no, as it appears to be, well, I don't really get what the problem is. So he reports back to the Jews that he can't find any fault with him. I, this just doesn't make any sense, he's saying. But... The mention of truth gets to the heart of the matter. Back in Genesis 3, right at the start of the Bible story, how does the serpent convince Adam and Eve to reject God as their king? He gets them to believe a lie about God, that God is not good, that he can't be trusted, that he's a spoil sport, he loves arbitrary rules that take away our freedom for no good reason, and that we can just do as well without him in our lives. This is how human rule so often works. Truths get twisted 
into half-truths. Do you remember the fuss and debate on both sides of the EU referendum campaign about whether £350 million is paid per week to the NHS? No, that, 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 the, the pain and the, the, the angst around whether that is the whole truth, is it the half-truth or whatever. With, with human rulers of all kinds, truth so often gets manipulated to serve power. But here is a king of a different sort, a king who speaks the truth because he is the truth, a king who truly rules justly and fairly, a king who can be trusted, and a king who they mock. Look at the crown of thorns, verse 2, the purple robe, the mocking uh, hail king of the Jews, which of course he is. He absolutely is the king of the Jews. And Pilate even pronounces him innocent. So do you see, do you see what's going on here? The one they mock as king, laugh at him and jeer at him. You call yourself a king. No, he is king. The man on trial as king is king. But then what does it mean for Jesus to be this true king? Surely, even if it's true that he's king, the fact that he's dying means in the end evil is winning and goodness and truth and love don't pay, don't work. Well, we need to see, secondly then, that the man who dies a lawbreaker saves lawbreakers. The man who dies as a lawbreaker saves lawbreakers. So, so verse 7 in chapter 19 Look, he, he's a lawbreaker, the, the, the Jewish people insist. Claiming to be the son of God is blasphemy, and for that he must die. Now these people would rather see the innocent die and the guilty Barabbas go free. And yet, do you know what? That is precisely what Jesus' death achieves. Lawbreakers are saved as the innocent one dies, as if he were a lawbreaker, in the place of lawbreakers. The same law that condemns blasphemers talks of other situations where there must be a death. When a person sins, there must be a sacrifice, a death of an animal in the temple. And the Son of God has come to fulfil that law. He must indeed die because he is the Son of God. This is what he came to do. Now Pilate starts to realise, oh, oh no, I've, I've made a serious error. But now he's been backed into a corner. And he tries to release Jesus, but instead the lawbreaker Barabbas goes free. So twice Pilate presents Jesus to the crowds. Here is the man, here is your king. In other words, look at him, how pathetic he looks with his crown of thorns and his bruises and his bleeding from all this flogging. Did you ever see a king who looked like this? I don't want any more part in your petty quarrel, Pilate is saying. Behold the mighty power of Rome. Look what we can do to you if you step out of line. But the crowd reply, well, actually, we're quite happy with the mighty power of Rome. The, 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 the Roman, we have no king but Caesar. But Jesus is a different sort of king, a different sort of man. And along the way, we, we, we see that it's not Jesus who is guilty of blasphemy in this trial, but his people and Pilate. 
and the crowd who are guilty for killing their king. But we also see, in addition to that, what true kingship and true manhood looks like. That's the ironic thing about Pilate's statements. Here is the man. Here is your king. Here is true manhood. Here is true kingship. Here is true power. What does it look like? It looks like laying down your life for others, even for the guilty, for those who don't deserve it. Paul says in Romans 5, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die, but God shows his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. This is what it means to be God, to be a king, to be a true man. Doesn't this turn normal notions of leadership, of power on their head? It's well known, for example, that the founder of Islam, Muhammad, used military might to establish his rule over others. He he killed others to save himself, even. How different is it with Jesus? Unlike so many politicians or senior leaders of business or culture, he didn't need to lie or cheat or sleep his way to the top. He already had equality with God, being in very nature God, but he did not use it to his advantage. Well, what does this then mean for us as we watch this extraordinary conversation go on and the deep levels of irony that John is piling up? Well, we need to realise as we look on that we're not neutral observers of this trial either. Like Pilate, we have a horse in this race. Do you see, we we have a vested interest in finding Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy, finding his claims not to be true, finding the loophole that means we don't need to engage with these things for ourselves personally. So we will say, oh, it's just Chinese whispers. It's all made up. We can't ever know what Jesus really said or did, someone will say. Really? You're sure about that? Enough to stake your life on it? All the evidence suggests that these New Testament documents came out of eyewitness testimony. The uncanny details, the archaeological corroboration. Isn't it just a little too convenient to conclude that there's nothing in this, as so many people do? Because if we do conclude that, well, we get, to, we get to carry on ignoring him. And we get to carry on calling the shots in our lives and living as if this world is all there is. Now, of course, it's fair to ask those questions about whether we can trust the evidence. But we also need to ask, can we trust ourselves and our own motives as we do that? Of course, if we've already trusted Jesus then we need to see from here what true kingship looks like. He takes the floggings and the beatings. He absorbs the unjust punishment. He leaves himself defenceless, not in spite of being a king, but because he is a king. This is what it means to be God's son. Here is our king. 
Well, if that's true, why then do we still persist in our own kind of petty ambitions for ourselves, you know, to be seen to be great in the eyes of others, to have others serve us rather than to serve them ourselves, to have others speak well of us rather than to speak well of them, to enjoy, you know, a few years, even a decade or two, if we can make it to the top, whatever that means, rather than to aim for eternity of being with Jesus. I was struck by the sad story of a pastor of a church in Texas. His, his name was John Powell, and he was killed a few weeks ago on the side of a motorway because he left his own car to go and help someone whose car was on fire after a collision. And while he was helping them, a lorry careered into him at the side of the road, killing him immediately, though not before he'd seen it coming and pushed someone else out of the way to safety. But in his final sermon to his church, he apparently said this, how could we pray that God would have compassion on those that need it while not having compassion on them ourselves? It would be like praying for someone who got robbed and beaten and thrown into a ditch alive while we pass on our way to wherever we're going. And 13 days later, he died putting that into practice. Sadly, not the only pastor who's died in a tragic accident this summer. But that was somebody who understood what it meant for Jesus to use his kingship to serve. The man on trial as king is king. The man who dies a lawbreaker saves lawbreakers. Let's not let our review, our assessment of him, say more about us than it does about him. Let's give our lives to worshipping this servant king. Let me pray now. Father, we thank you for these words, this account of this conversation between a king and a true king. Father, we ask that we would give up our own pretensions of power and seeking what is on offer in the eyes of the world and be prepared to use whatever power or authority we are given, not to serve ourselves, but to serve those around us as we have been served by King Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name.